Hi, and welcome to this episode of The VFX Show. This is our Christmas episode, and what's more Christmassy than the film Poor Things? The incredible tale, the fantastical tale of Bella, uh, brought back to life in a cross between Barbie, Frankenstein, and uh, something that's uh, definitely from the uh, Coen brothers. So uh, joining me, as always, are the superior minds of Jason Diamond and Matt Wallen. Jason, how are you? Uh, I feel like my brain has also been replaced by a baby's brain. I see. And Matt Crowbar, this one <laughs> into your cranium. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I, I too have a baby's brain. <laughs> <laughs> so how much did you guys know what this was going into it? And how much did you get kind of like, what the hell am I watching? I, I knew zero. I, okay. I think I watched the trailer like way back when it, was doing the festival run and there was one uh trailer okay. out and then i was like okay i get it uh at least the, the vibe like i don't want to watch anything else about it uh i love everyone involved especially yorgos so uh but also robbie ryan right the cinematographer well yeah 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 um but yeah so i was i was very excited to see this yeah matt do you know yeah, about I, it going I, in or do you get mm, cold i mean i just knew like tiny blurbs that I'd read like in the trades that was it really I, I don't think I'd seen a, I knew there was a trailer but I don't think I watched it like it 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 wasn't something that was um like high on my radar I guess so what'd you think uh I mean there's things about it that I think were were kind of cool I think there were certainly aspects of the story that were interesting I I kept thinking it was sort of like a you know, Guillermo del Toro's Barbie or something, you know, it kind of had this strange uh, similarity to that movie uh, to me in some ways. Um, I guess in both cases, they're naive characters that are navigating the world with this kind of blunt honesty. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's I kind of a, a female empowerment component to the narrative in a strange way, like in this kind of... Mm -hmm dark twisted narrative i mean you know it was it was fun to watch it was um you know there are things about it i didn't like but i mean overall it was um yeah it was entertaining i guess emma you know emma stein definitely said she was attracted to it because uh i don't know about empowerment but definitely like uh the the view of a woman unfiltered by the conventions of society she's like how could she not play it it was like such an interesting uh kind of yeah. role i yeah I'd like to be and in a world. she produced it too. So yeah, exactly. I'd like to be in a world where we don't have to have a female empowerment as a category. It's just a woman happens to be the hero, happens well, to be the movie. It like, might not be the best phraseology there. I guess it was more like, you know, there was the I think a line in the movie that I kind of summed it up where uh, is something about I think it was in the movie where she talks about like as she becomes more and more independent and interesting and you know, that it drives the men crazy or whatever, you know, like that they become, they go crazier and crazier. She becomes more independent and self-sufficient or whatever. I don't know. I guess, Jason, there is a lot of sexual politics in this, right? The woman's right to do with and as she pleases with her own body and how she wants to do stuff. And what do you think of the movie, Jason? Well, well, it's uh, just for that point, And obviously, spoiler alert from the, from, you know, minute one, but um 
it actually starts as not a not a woman's right to choose because she is so upset about being pregnant she jumps off the bridge and kills herself so i mean they don't they don't expressly say it's because she can't have an abortion i mean it's not that blatant so there's no there's no actual reason other than they just suggest that she was upset by being pregnant or something like that so that's why she jumps off the bridge in the beginning which allows her to be found by the Willem Dafoe character, and then he does his thing. I mean, um, it's never, yeah, it's never really discussed, is it? It's, I mean, how does she get to a point where she feels she has no other option, especially given that she's pregnant? Right. I kind of read into it that she didn't, she was very unhappy in the marriage because the guy that she was married yeah. to or is married to is obviously a dick. But, but to, I guess in that era, she has vastly less options than a woman even has today, and not that a woman yeah. has every option today. So, it's but, a it's a complex. It's not they don't really explore that though, do they? Like particularly, which is good because like I just yeah. it's fine. Like it's just enough. And again, I don't think they. I think the subtext is more of a Frankenstein sort of subtext with the with the overlay of a of like a woman's point of view as she. The mixture of uh, a woman being reintroduced into society while at the same time being um, a coming of age story, but with an adult, because she's an like, adult experiencing all of these these growth patterns of an infant to a thing ex on an accelerated, you know, level. Yeah, I did like, and I don't know if you've thought about this, Matt, but I really liked how William Defoe's character, Doctor Baxter wasn't the evil, maniacal, vicious, nasty, kind of classic kind of Frankenstein, you know, you know, he, he, he seemed to me to be remarkably perverse in some respects, but also empathetic. Like I didn't hate him as a character. I thought that was nice to not to be just black or white. I mean, clearly he's got some problems and some issues, but by the same token, uh, he also has some horrendous childhood aspects that yeah. were had me doubled up in laughter at times. Yeah, he's he was definitely he's morally ambiguous, but like yeah. seemed to have a a bit of a heart in some strange way yeah. for his for his uh, progeny, if you will. Like, and I think the yeah the illusions he makes about the way in which his own father sort of experimented mm -hmm. on him uh, as a boy or as a young person or whatever, I think was also yeah. telling. You know that he was. It, it, there's something um, so obviously otherworldly about the universe in which this movie takes place. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't really feel like our world uh, in any way. It's an exaggerated, um, punctuated version of, I guess, of our world. It's something that it plays more like a, a kind of a Grimm's fairy tale kind of uh, narrative. Point. In, in some stuff that I in some stuff that I saw, uh, Yorgos, the director, said that he the the way the reason they leaned into what they had sort of started to investigate with fish eyes and wide angles on the favorite, they really which is also Robbie Ryan. Uh, interestingly, Robbie Ryan that was his first movie with Yorgos, and prior to that was uh, I forget the guy's name, but he shot the lobster and killing of a sacred deer and and. Uh, Dogtooth, I believe, um, and uh, he he said that they they really leaned into it and used that um, 
the fish eyes and the weird compositions as the expansive view of Emma Stone's character. So it's really her point of view is the whole movie is front, which is why things look childlike or childish in a sense, while also being incredibly ornate and complicated. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth about, you know, specificity, but in the thing that I saw him talking about, he was sort of saying that that was the, that was the point of view he was using for the film. But also, I mean, uh, you're going from those black and whites to incredibly saturated. Um, oh yeah. Rich colors. You're going from these really awkward wide angle uh, lenses to very precise kind of close-ups at times. I mean, mm -hmm. I found the cinematography, uh, also the camera movement of the cinematography. Like yeah. they, the camera would often really deliberately move in an unmotivated way, not mm -hmm. the way I was taught to move a camera when panning or whatever. I and so it. you were, yeah. So you're aware it's, it's a, kind of a lesson in, Hey, how many rules can I break, but not just gratuitously break them and break them with effect, I guess, Jason. Well, because they would do, they would do like someone would walk into the room. You're clearly in like what you feel is a static, like they let you think you're in a static, very wide. And then someone crosses frame and they, they whip the big, you know, uh, not fisheye, but almost fisheye, probably eight mil, you know, around that goes, everything warps. And then they push forward, moving down the hallway. And of course things, you know, with fisheyes, things that are far move farther, faster, and things on the edges move even faster. So it's very disorienting about what's actually happening in the scene, how fast are people moving, how, you know, things that your brain normally will pick up in a dolly shot or something this is obviously uh has to be steadicam or some sort of arm because you see the track for all the stuff that they're doing with that those wide angles but i also want to just back up a second i personally i need to see the movie maybe one or two more times uh but i i loved it but and i think i've said this before about other movies maybe we've talked about or whatever similar to movies like bo's afraid or other movies like that like the fact that people can make these movies, whether I like them 100% or not, even I'll add under the skin to this list, they have to be made. Like people have to make these movies. I don't care if anyone actually likes them. That's a secondary exercise. Everyone complains, including us on this show, about so many Marvel movies, so many plots that are the same and, and box office popcorn. You can't have it both ways. You can't say this movie shouldn't exist. Not that anyone's saying that, but you know, you have to have these movies where people are like pushing and pushing and pushing so that another filmmaker sees this and is inspired and does the middle of the road version that maybe is more yeah. palatable to a larger audience, but is, but is influenced by that. So I, I applaud these efforts in general. I happen to enjoy these efforts more often than not because i just like that i want to see new shit and i want to see people do stuff that makes me go oh wow that's amazing so to paraphrase that into musical terms you don't get the beatles doing helter skelter unless you get hendrix doing guitar solos even though hendrix is too appealing to a well, smaller audience but you also don't get half of the pop music that ever existed without the beatles whether you like the beatles or not Right. Like so, there, there, there's a downstream yeah. effect to, yeah. to the purer nature of something. Not that the Beatles were so far outside of the 
box, but you know, just to use your but, example. But Matt, um, one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that people made indie films that were breathtakingly, you know, kind of like a razor head or whatever back in the day that was really dramatic and really out there. They just couldn't have what I'd call polished visual effects in them. But now it seems like you can have what I'm going to call an independent type film. Um, and yet you can still have a company like Union VFX, who did the visual effects work in this, producing, you know, top shelf visual effects. Like the effects didn't look hokey, they didn't look cheap, and they didn't look mm -hmm. nasty. They looked really good. But that wasn't the case back in the day. Like, you know, it would be like the core mark of the indie film. They couldn't afford the visual effects. Now it seems like it's more. Do you agree with that, Matt, or not? Yeah. I mean, I think it's exciting. Uh, you know, I totally agree with what's what Jason said too. Like, it's great to see something like this that's it's so different and it has a really unique um aesthetic approach, like the way in which the narrative is told. Like, I mean, I don't know what that wide was, but it was super wide. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> but it, like some of it anyway, and uh, yeah, uh, maybe even wider than what did you say, eight or something? I don't know. It well, there's a like four a, mil, which is like the porthole one. That's a four mil that yeah. they have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's, it was so fun to watch visually because it's so interesting looking. Um, and, you know, it's, you, I didn't know where it was going to go. I, I found it surprising in the different places it went. And effects wise, you know, it's such a fantastical universe uh, that the effects are, uh, you know, in service to the story, but they can also be kind of stylized in a way too, where they take on a, a somewhat different kind of veneer and it feeds that. I guess the, you know, the sort of art direction vision that's being articulated, mm -hmm. they can really get into like expanding the universe, creating a certain kind of look that's like, there's never a lot of people. If I, I don't believe there was, it's always sort of, um, you know, low, lowly populated, you know, there's some set work that's uh, integrated with some nice visual effects. The, one thing, I, I, when I think about the visual effects in the movie that does give me sort of just mild anxiety is uh, unwarping some of those things yeah. to <laughs> be able to like, you know, to match that lens and then to be able to sort of, you know, uh, stitch things together and then put it back into that space, I think would have been, uh, for a compositor anyway, that seems like that would have been challenging. Uh, was, I watched a... Well, yeah, Mike. Mike's got the yeah. You got the scoop on it, but I watched the thing that's that I was really surprised by and pleased by that a significant portion of I mean, almost everything were sets. Which I'll send you. I'll send you the thing I saw for the for the uh, show notes. I mean, mm -hmm. they built everything. It's incredible beautiful set work so you could actually move through it which of course to your point about the lens like you need real geometry for the lens to really do its thing and so they built for for the wide you know angle lens and then they used very large led volumes for like the ship the whole ship is wrapped in an led volume and the visual effects that they were doing really was like some water spray and like fixing the seam at the where the ceiling didn't you know the led volume didn't go up high enough 
which oddly to your point is right where it would be a pain in the balls at the top of the fisheye. But, uh, and, uh, smoke coming out of the, you know, sort of engine. Yeah. Yeah. Turret. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I mean, was very pleased to see that there was so much physical work done, you know, done on the sets because I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, just to give you guys, uh, if you're not aware, listening a plug for the discussion I had, I got to sit down with the team at uh, Union VFX and do a podcast discussion about this, which is already up on FX Guide, uh, discussing the miniatures, the LED work, and what I was fascinated about, which I'm sure we'll come to, is how on earth they got the head of a goose on a body of a goat. Or the <laughs> oh, yeah. Head of yeah, a dog so on a chicken. Great. That was a neat um, Dr. Doolittle kind of vibe, yeah. That was well, a really Dr. neat Moreau, effect and cool Ryan. designs. Like those were so uh, kind of, they they said a lot without uh, speaking, mm -hmm. right? Like having those things in the mix, like it sort of colored and uh, really embellished uh, the world and kind of the backstory of, I think, both the, certainly the Willem Dafoe character and the um, mm -hmm. uh, so Emma. Bef before we get into the visual Stone. effects, I think it's Stone. worth explicitly discussing the fact that this film has quite a lot of explicit sex scenes. It doesn't have anything you'd describe as pornographic or, or necessarily gratuitous, because I think it serves the plot. But where we, I mean, I don't know, it just feels like it, it, it was surprisingly a lot of sex for me. Not, not like I was prudish <laughs> about it, but it was like a lot of nude scenes. I was not, I was not expecting that in the, yeah. as the sort of basically the whole second act of the film. Um, it makes sense once you sort of begin to understand why it's happening. And, and again, I think that's where the coming of age story comes from. And the Mark Ruffalo character is great as the foil for or the, the sort of initial impetus for that. Um, um, it, it has a, it has a little bit of a, Maybe not Munchausen, but it has a little bit of a Terry Gilliam-esque vibe in terms of like the characters along the way that help her form her form her sort of morals or values as she begins to have her own ideas. And then like the older lady and Gerard Carmichael that she meets on the boat, like they're reinforcing ideas, like as what happens in the real world, right? But like, to your point, in a very sparsely populated world, she meets very specific people. And even the madam in the, in the brothel, like is giving her a life lesson. Um, though, so, though I found the whole biting thing with the madam at the yeah. brothel just <laughs> was so odd. Yeah. I guess I thought um, too, like with regards to the the sort of explicitness of the of the some of the scenes in the movie to me it was like i kept thinking about the way in which they describe uh the character right is that you you come to learn that uh i don't know if it's i can't remember if it's in the first act or if you learn this a little bit later that she was pregnant and the can mm -hmm. kill had killed herself right and the uh the baby lived but he took the brain out of the baby and put it into the woman. And so I kept thinking about like when, once they explain that bit and then you're sort of watching her as she's learning to speak and she's learning to mm -hmm. control and move her body and she becomes much more sophisticated over time. But there is something I was just looking to see if I could find it, but the, 
the early stages of childhood development too, where it goes from like the, you know, oral to anal to whatever, you know, and like all those kinds of um, early stages of childhood development. And like, as you, the, the uh, discovering the body, you know, and I kind of thought mm -hmm. with her character, at least given the backstory, all those things that, you know, like she makes some illusion about why don't people do this all the time or whatever, mm -hmm. right. When she's discovering yeah. sort of, you know, her sexuality or whatever. I, to me, it seemed like it was appropriate in the context of the story. Like it didn't ever, uh, I guess it was a lot, but it, it didn't really seem like it was so much. It felt like it fit with the, the story that was being told. It just seemed appropriate. Yeah, it just, yeah, exactly. Okay, so so let's discuss visual effects because there's a lot to discuss here. Um, let's start with the, we touched on this, these uh, hybrid animals. Um, I think we mentioned that work incredibly well as a plot device to contextualize sort of the experimental mm -hmm. nature of the, and successful experimentation that Defoe's character is doing. But I always like to imagine, what would I do if I read in the script that there enters, you know, a uh, goat with a goose's head or a chicken with a dog's head. And as I think I said it to the guys at, in the actual podcast, when I was uh, talking to them at Union, I was like, the, the problem I have is just the diameters involved, right? Like, mm -hmm. like I'd be like, the goose has a thin neck and the goat has a broad, broader body, particularly the case mm -hmm. with the sort of, you know, uh, lead kind of iconic one, which is this, pig's head on a chicken and it just doesn't seem like if i was given that i'd be like this doesn't seem like a good idea to me because these aren't good matches i thought they sold it um oh yeah and mm -hmm. but it was a hell of a comp job because they had to basically film both animals with kind of the right angles and then stabilize one and and then so are they because the are they all is each part real? Because there was even one, I can't remember which one it was. I want to say it was a pig's body and then as a bird, so maybe a bird's head or something. And it was, it was moving the, the, I thought it was animated and that the animation of the, uh, mammalian body was moving in a way that was more avian or something, right? Like that, it, it felt like the brain okay. was controlling the body in a different way. Now, if they, if they were all just real animals and it was, they'd somehow synced them up and got them where they were able to composite them, what a nightmare, uh, but you know, how challenging. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it works really well, but I thought some of it must've been uh, an animated character because it looked like some of the performance I mean was different than the way an animal would move. Not as I understand it. Yeah. I mean, obviously there is CG involved. There's also projection and various tricks for the stitching and the stitches around the join points. But as I understand it, most of it was based off live action. And uh, and it that's in itself kind of astounding to me. Yeah. Also, they are not, I know this is a weird thing to say, if you haven't seen the film, they're not kind of grotesque. They're mm -hmm. kind of nice. No. Yeah. It reminds me of that Instagram account where they used to, uh, they would, people, someone would be jamming two animals together. A lot of times it was dog heads on other animals and they were very close to these uh, in approach. Um, 
but, but I think doing the other that thing in that black and white white angle footage stuff as well, right? This is right. not just happening. And that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's the other thing I liked about it is that it was happening in the grainy kind of low contrast, um, very um, of a of a period uh, black and white footage and in the wide angle. They seem to have the, a lot of stuff, key things center framed a lot of times. Uh, also, the one lens that I will have to call out because I own a few of them now because I because it's one of my favorite lenses is the Petzval. The... 57, I think it's a 57 or a 55, I can't remember. Uh, uh, Petsfall, I have the rehoused ones from TLS, but um, it's the ones that were, had the huge swirl bokeh behind mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Or, yeah, yeah. or crazy, yep. like even the very opening shot when they're doing a little dolly in and the, the, um, or the black and white and you get that crazy halo lens flare. That's like, so interesting because that I, I, I didn't know what that was. And I thought that what we were looking at was something that was shot super no. fisheye and that was flattened. And what we were seeing was no, the stretching that's the lens. and distortion. No, that's no the lens does that. It's based on the iris design and whatever. It's an old Petzval lens that, that they've rehoused. And Yeah, that was a really cool a, and unusual look for sure. Um, Chase Irvin used it. give us a link for the show notes. Yeah, Chase Irvin used it to great effect in Blonde in the color Arthur Miller era, mm-hmm. um, where they try to make it look like photo, more like photograph. Uh, I think it was the Arthur, if it's, it might be the Arthur Miller or the Joe DiMaggio one. Anyway, uh, a similar thing. It's getting a lot of play these days. We've been using it on a project. It's one of my favorite lenses for multiple reasons. But yeah, mm-hmm. that, so, so in a lot of ways, in a lot of, both with a fisheye and with that lens, they're really f- the the cinematography is center framing a lot of things because that's where the cleanest part of the lens is, even though it falls off the funk really fast or fisheye. So it felt like a lot of those animals lived. Oh, maybe it's just my maybe I'm not remembering all of them exactly, but it felt like they were living a little center or off center to that, so you could really feel them. But then you had the rest of the frame kind of falling off that help them maybe sit in better. But I think I'm curious to see if those would have worked as good. I'm sure they would have done, uh, Union would have done a great job regardless, but in like the super hyper color, because I don't think we see them in color. I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't think, think so. we do. But they were, they were great. Yeah. Now let's get a link to the lens you're talking about in the show notes because I, yeah. I wasn't familiar with it either. And I'm the same as Matt. I was like, that's kind of really interesting how they're doing that. Yeah. Um, let's jump to the LED volume. I think one of the things that's interesting about the LED volume, it's like they were using um, not particularly super cutting edge LEDs. I think they were 2.6 millimil panels and they had um, a semicircle. And so the wall's resolution was about 24K by about uh, 4K. Um, it's a nice LED running 10-bit color, you know, 24 frames a second and stuff. Uh, yeah. But the thing about it is these are sort of what I'm perceiving now is kind of smaller LED volumes. Like I think there was a push to like, how can I make the biggest LED volume possible? And now I'm hearing a lot more application of smaller LEDs for interesting things like this mm-hmm. case, miniatures, right? Um, and so it's not uh, to take anything away from the LED, right? I mean, it's great, but it was not like the... You know, it used to be that we had these huge stats. Well, I made the biggest LED volume in the world, and now it's like, mm, yeah, well, true. 
but well, they had uh, a pretty big one that wrapped around the boat, but then they yeah, had a, but but like then the they had a smaller, was, no, it wasn't like massive, adventure, right? but you, you, no, no, they had where the, where they're sitting, like when they're sitting on the boat on the deck, there's an led wall sure. there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not uh, like the, uh, that's yes, exactly. That's the led of the horizon behind them when they're sitting yeah, yeah, in the deck yeah. chairs versus yeah. the led that I'm talking about, which of the ship itself where they put in oh, the sure, yeah. water. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. saying that I don't know if you guys have sensed this at all, but there just seems to be quite a few applications now. Of like, in addition to the classic one you described, which is you know the background for the mm-hmm. uh, sitting in the sun chairs, uh, the deck chairs, there is just this thing about being able to come up with innovative uses of LEDs that mm-hmm. maybe are just not throwing money at a problem kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to so, say, you know, as you bring that up, like you know, what's kind of cool and sort of maybe it's maybe it's just me i don't know but but i think one thing that's kind of cool is i didn't find myself in the way that i think i did at the beginning of the sort of led volume uh period that we're living in now i i think it was you know you were conscious of it and what was cool about this is i i got so involved in the narrative and in the world building that they were doing mm-hmm. that when it was now thinking back on it, oh yeah, okay, I guess that was an LED volume. I didn't even think about it. I did, didn't even. I just was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. a, you know, that's a really interesting designed, uh, you know, uh, sunset out there or sunrise or whatever mm-hmm. or stormy weather. Like, you know, they've really gone for something that's very illustrative or painterly in the aesthetic of the city in the background or in the stuff out uh yeah off the deck of the ship and but i didn't really think about how it was assembled like it didn't call attention it called attention to itself in that it was highly stylized to fit the world and to fit the but story. everything was stylized so it's exactly like, it, it yeah, yeah. It right down to the costumes the makeup mm-hmm. uh, you know every little detail and so and the and the, even the way it's shot the lensing you know the choices that they're making mm-hmm. from a uh, uh, cinematography point of view i didn't feel that i was being drawn out of it and the they didn't call they called attention to themselves in the way that they were supposed to but mm-hmm. not in any way for me at least on a technical level which is kind of cool i think I, well I think you're super really crabby about, about that shit too so yeah, I know. I'm it worked for a, you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so, I'm getting soft in my old age. Uh, last week, um, last week, Paul DeBevick was here at Sydney doing uh, Sidgraph Asia. He did a whole thing on LED volumes, and in particular, really good if people aren't across them. I mean, I know you know this stuff, Jason, because you've got one. But if you're not across LED volumes, he walked through very carefully the problems with LED volumes when they're using RGB and not RGBA, so they're producing um, spiky. Uh, mm-hmm. frequencies so that doesn't give you the same color matching has the gamut that you want it covers all the colors theoretically but doesn't actually produce specifically the colors that um, you would otherwise get in nature and then on top of that he was pointing out things like black levels and how black levels tend to be gray and so then you can subtract mm-hmm. out from those but if you subtract out from them and you've already got dark colors you're going to crush the blacks and he just worked through all of that really really convincingly um to show how uh, you can get an LED volume to produce really good uh, results, but it's certainly not a matter of just putting a picture up on the LED wall and then saying, there you go. You have to do a bunch of matrixing and adjustments so as to allow for the physicality of what happens when anything is mm-hmm. in with like effectively bounce light and uh, yeah. and fill and stuff. 
And I guess in this case, I was going to say the colors in those skies and stuff was kind of perfect for doing this, right? We're not talking about skin cones. We're not talking about things where dark blacks that are going to get crushed. We weren't worried about things looking uh, close to camera. And so they would be like, well, hang on, that depth of field doesn't kind of look right. Because that one always throws me when I see LED walls yeah. and the, the depth of field just suddenly seems to go bonkers at a particularly odd point in the mm -hmm. image. Um, and there's no chromatic uh, reduction for distance. So I've gone on about this before on FX Guide, but in the distance of a shot, like if you looked at a, uh, an impressionist painting or a kind of a, a painter that's skilled in the art from the 17th century who's painting a landscape, then the colors, the palette of colors in the distance is dramatically reduced. There are vibrant colors of flowers and stuff in the foreground, but everything kind of goes to a much more reduced palette in the distance. And so it's not just depth of field, it's a whole lot of stuff that sells mm -hmm. a, a volume that necessarily yeah, atmospheric comes from diffusion and stuff diffusion, like that. Exactly, yeah. 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 Even Bob so, Ross knew that. So <laughs> this stuff works really, really well. Like this is just hitting all the sweet spots for being a successful well, LED. Mm -hmm. Well, also the also I think the other thing that helps in a lot of ways is that the at least in the the ship, but even in a lot of ways, a lot of the uses. The wall, the 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 in quote environment, literal environment, you know, sky and whatever, in on the wall is a basically a caustic, right? Like it's smoke and other things. It, there, there's very few shots that are uber realistic in the background. I feel like, and so because you're in there, and you don't have a hard edge sunlight that you're trying to hit like a sun, you know, there, to Matt's point, that the realism is reduced enough that the wall you get to play in that middle space. But I will say the the first thing I thought about when I saw both the like title cards, which we can talk about with the really great black and white compositions of like her riding a koi or catfish or something. Uh, and, and both, and the backgrounds on the LED walls reminded me of the fluids that Aronofsky and Libatique used in the fountain mm -hmm. for space. And the you know stuff around the tree of life and the where the the spaceship is the bubble around the tree and you're seeing all that stuff and that's also photographed micro you know photography of liquids and caustics and things so it it reminded me a lot of that sort of organic thing which I think immediately tells you that it's not CG in a sense like which I think is what you were feeling Matt like mm -hmm. that's why you weren't drawn out of it because you're like Maybe that's a composite. Maybe it's obviously a composite somewhere, but like it looks real because the stuff is pseudo real. So like your brain goes, okay. And also we're in like a weirdo world, like, you right. know, uh, whatever. So I feel like that's the part that like sells it in a big way too, is there's a, there's a consistent decision that's made from the outset of what this is mm -hmm. gonna, what is this world? What are the rules of this world? What does this world look like? And I think they stay pretty true to that. Like if I, if I had any beef with the movie at all, it is that like some of the designs, I just don't, I don't think work that well. Like there's like the design of the boat. <laughs> like what, what is that? It looks like an anvil, you know, like I know it doesn't even look the like The design a of the boat, yeah, I bumped on that a bit. The one that I really bumped on was, is it Alexandria where she starts going down the stairs to where the, yeah, uh, right. the 
poor people are. And it's this incredibly theatrical, incredibly almost Lord of the Rings-esque castle with huge smashed bits of the staircase missing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, like where did all that come from? It looks like an old like stage or opera like backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. Opera, exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. Set but it's a miniature, right? But I mean, yeah, no, it's miniature and they were comped into it. Um mm. the live action of them on their stairs. But I mean, it just felt like while operatic is something you would aspire to, it yeah. felt to me too Bordvillian, too big, too kind of in your face. It was Yeah, it drew like attention that, to itself in a yeah, way that I exactly. think it probably shouldn't have in the context of that we're really in her story and here it's this other you know moment where it it, it just called attention to itself it's one of those ones I, that as a compositor yeah. i look at a shot like that having had you know a few shots in my life where i'm given you know a a, a mission to like make this look good and it's like it'll never look good can't, <laughs> you know it like, will look fantastical yeah yeah it yeah, can yeah. technically look good but it won't look good exactly uh, I would say like tonality and like anxiety wise, while this movie doesn't have a ton of anxiety, uh, it felt like at that moment where she's starting to realize class systems and she's upper class, how can she help? And she takes the money and does the thing. And of course, she doesn't even know how to do the right thing with the money because she gives it to the dudes and they're like, oh, we'll totally fix it. And we'll then she walks away and they look at each other yeah. like, yeah. Um, I'll just put it in my pocket here. Yeah. Um it, that part and that sort of area where she starts to realize that class system and and the, the certainly the sort of like hinting at the grotesqueness of the babies in the in that the poor people's area like mm-hmm. down below um reminded me of mother not to like pull another aronofsky vibe here but at, there is a similar thing where she be, you know in that last act of mother that goes obviously way beyond this movie there is a moment of realization uh that something's happening and it kind of felt the same and i was like is this Mm -hmm. i don't think this is going to go there but my brain was like you know my brain makes ridiculous connections all the time but it was i I felt like oh are we are we in this world are we in this yeah i think that's a really good like that's a really good thing to bring up like i i feel like at that moment in the narrative too that's what that's what i thought was so compelling about this as a movie was that I didn't know where we were going. And there definitely was a moment where she's become so sophisticated by that moment in the story in terms of her, you know, the way she articulates herself and carries herself. She's there. She's really indistinguishable from, you know, an adult uh, in the world. You know, she's highly uh, educated, has a big vocabulary and, you know, is in command of everything that she's doing. And it did feel like at that moment we could, you know, they could call an audible in the narrative and we'd be in this <laughs> totally different kind of universe where there was a larger kind of almost like a hammer hitting you with the points that it yeah. was trying to make like in the end of Mother. So, but yeah. So I think that why I was calling it vaudevillian before and almost pantomime you know, I know this is like in a weird concept, but it's almost like pantomime art direction because in like, uh, and again, Going back to Sigrid, we had this other panel, which Paul wasn't on, uh, with Rob Coleman and a bunch of people. We were talking about getting digital characters to act. And Rob was talking about how how he had to earn the right to have a cutaway uh, for a digital character's reaction so that the character could be communicating subtext through just like a kind of a raised eyebrow, right? 
And so it's all about that subtlety where you've got a tipping point where the animator could provide subtext through character animation. Now, if I just translate that now to environment work, when she's going down that stairs and that huge drop and stuff, what it felt like to me was it was, it was sort of telegraphing too heavily the subtext of what the art direction was trying to do. It was like, she is separated from the poor people. They're down there. She can't get to them because mm-hmm. look, the bridge is broken and it's all bleak because look, it's all orange and dusty. And look, they're all poor and down there and she's looking down on them. Like every heavy handed kind of sort of art direct. So I don't think that the visual effects artists that worked on it did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it was like, couldn't you have had a more impactful emotional message if it had just been the equivalent of Rob's raised eyebrow to communicate something rather than having to cut to somebody explicitly saying something. This felt like we were art direct explicitly saying everything in a very um, deliberate, as I say, like pantomime or or a Broadvillian kind of way. Visually expositional. There you go. Yeah. See, uh, now you could have saved me 10 minutes if you said that. However, (laughs) however, I will say, again, based on what at least I saw Yorgo say uh, earlier today when I was looking up some stuff, is if this is indeed through her POV, and even though she is beginning to reach her level of sophistication, the realization, the subtext I got, at least now as we're discussing it, the subtext is that she actually doesn't even understand how to process that there. Thus it would be this very blunt, blatant um, thing because she doesn't have nuance to understand yeah, yeah, yeah. and describe. But my problem, but my problem is that my problem is I didn't as an audience member get the emotional impact of that because all the children, the babies, the poor people were yeah, so yeah. far away. Like there was no humanity I didn't experientially get any angst for the humanity that was being yeah. a suffering because right. visually it was done in such a kind so of telegraphed a, fashion. You needed a reverse looking up at her from their position. Or maybe. just some reality that, that you know, like some humanity of the people that are suffering that would make me empathetically in line with her reaction I wasn't empathetically in line with her reaction. I can cognitively be appalled at the poor people, but I didn't feel it. I just saw it like as like to say, look, down here, poor people, up here, rich people. Can't get to between the two. Isn't it horrible? There is one shot in there that stuck out to me too in that same, you know, sequence where there's that effort to kind of draw that connection. And it's kind of like a memory serves, it's kind of an overhead, and we're moving kind of from the kind of ruin area, like up towards the broken down staircase. And it and it, so mm-hmm. there's a live action component. And I guess I thought it was a painting, but I guess a miniature, right? And mm-hmm. where those two things are supposed to be integrated, there's something not right. I, in, in my viewing of it, I was like, oh, that's a complicated shot. And there's so many elements and the perspective seemed wrong. Like it didn't line up in a way that it felt correct. Like it felt like you were moving from like looking down into a box, basically where the, where the poor people are living. Right. And then you're moving out of the box and the box moves out of frame onto the miniature. And it just like the transitory 
space between the live action and the miniature uh, from a design standpoint felt like it didn't work. Not that it was a bad composite, but it was something that, you know, even if it was the best technical composite you could make, like it's not going to work because it's a, it's a design flaw. I thought visual language. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What do we think about Paris and the street scenes that were clearly vertically set extended and were studio, but were often meant to be daylight? Like um, there's a couple of sequences there, um, not just in Paris that were, you know, very vivid, uh, gorgeous skies and, and they, they built a lot, but they also set extended up. Did you feel that was closed in studio or did you feel like it had the air of being all a bit stylized kind of outside? I, I did very studio to me. Yeah. I mean, I, but not in a way that was bad. It just felt like they, you know, they had this thing that was working in the, in a different way in the black and white portion of the film where the integration of all the elements, you know, I don't know what was set and if there was much digital extension and a lot of that, it looked like it was almost all real. And then in the, 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 these kind of later sequences that are in color, you know, I like, I like the square that they built, you know, the little, the roundabout mm -hmm. with the fountain and the, the brothel and whatever. I thought that was nice, but the extension of the city into the distance, it just felt like a, it made me think of, um, uh, what's that movie? One from the heart, the, uh, Coppola movie that he made after Eclipse mm. Now, where he built everything <laughs> in a soundstage and he directed from inside his Airstream trailer, this silver fish <laughs> or whatever. Um, it kind of had that vibe to it where it felt, it felt like an artificial world. Like it didn't feel ever like we were really outside to me. Yeah, that didn't, yeah, I didn't, I felt definitely we, it was part set, very controlled, not actually outside, but it didn't, that didn't bother me. None of that really bothered me because it had a, at that point, like we're so, we've been visually conditioned to feel these very, this artificial world. I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's like to you, what you said earlier, like it's not our world. It is yeah. a time in the past, uh, ostensibly the thirties or something in that zone, very stylized kind of Moulin Rouge vibe, you know, and, uh, Interestingly, I guess they used a lot of um, actual, like, I wouldn't use the term translite, but like, you know, painted backdrops in the distance on a lot of those sets as well. So you have a mixture of a painted backdrop that's showing you a street that goes way back on top of a set extension and other things. So there's a mixture of techniques being used. Um, I didn't even recall and i guess it would just be because of the fisheye i didn't even recall ever like feeling the need to look up very much in the frames um so i i, I know you're asking about the set extensions up but they they weren't called that they weren't visually called out to me i didn't i didn't notice them as much as say like the stuff off the boat or you know i thought something like that i thought your reference there of moulin rouge is one i wish i'd thought of I thought this was more successful than Moulin Rouge in terms of those exteriors feeling like it was oh, both yeah. stylized and, uh, uh, but yeah, that there, there was definitely a kind of Moulin Rouge vibe to it. Um, 
in some of those uh, sequences, not just because of the French connection, but just because of the very um, strong visual aesthetic that is the architecture, the design, the colors, the saturation, oh, the yeah. just vividness of the I mean, world. the production design and set decoration and all that stuff is like, they should be winning awards 100% at the, uh, I think, the Oscars yeah. and other ones. I mean, it's, I it think is Emma stellar work. Be the running for an Oscar. I think she's going to no. appeal to the, uh, yeah. 100%, 100%. You guys just I, said something though, that I feel like it, I get, it, it makes me think like it gives, it? no, it gives me like verbiage, like that I didn't think I had before. The one thing I think that I found challenging for me with this movie as a, just a, as a viewer is I is this realization now that I'm having that other than like a few scenes that happen in the garden, I think at the house in the black and white mm -hmm. sequence, I feel like the entire movie, I felt like we were inside. We were indoors the entire time. I never felt like we were outside. <laughs> Then that's, I think, well, outside meaning, meaning outside sets, not outside, yeah, like physically, physic outside. physically, yeah, yeah. well, physically outside in the world. Like everything felt, even when it right. was supposed to be outside, it always felt like we were still in a soundstage. A soundstage. Or, and, and I think there's something about that in this expansive story of the growth of this, of this character, this character's like awakening and realization and, and, uh, uh, you know, knowledge gathering or whatever. There's something sort of oddly at odds for me with that, the thrust of that theme and that narrative, when I feel there was something just kind of claustrophobic, I think at a certain point in that everything she felt should like be we expanding were indoors. It still constrained. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's I, interesting. Claustrophobic hey, Matt, with fish eyes. <laughs> right. Matt, you said at the outset there were things about this film you didn't like. What didn't you like? What bumped on you? I think you? we've talked about them, really. I mean, I think, you know, okay. it's, it's what I just said, but also I I was troubled by the design of the boat and of that, um, I think I, I, I couldn't remember what it was called, but that I guess it was that miniature of the the castle. Alexandria and the... Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think it was, it's just things like that. It's like, but it, that's a, it's also just a personal taste thing too. And I recognize that like, you know, for some people that kind of the Moulin Rouge or, or that kind of like, uh, you know, uh, cabinet of Dr. Caligari kind of yeah. thing. Some people love that yeah. stuff and that's great. You know, I just think that for me, that tends to be less my jam, I guess. I don't know. But I mean, you know, like they did look up, I guess that's some of the things I was thinking now that I think about it in Paris, they do look up and you see the trams going and stuff, right? Is that in Paris? I don't know if that's uh, in or, Paris, but I don't know you mean the overhead shots of the, yeah, uh, they kind of, I think that's yeah. going to Alexandria. Actually, that's how yeah. they get there. Yeah. They, they look up and there's like cable the trams cars. on the wires and cable cars. To me, that felt like I was literally looking at the miniatures moving. Yeah. But it didn't, but it didn't bother me because it, it like fits, it fit the language. It's almost like a storybook, isn't it? At that point? Yeah. yeah like, like, and it's a fine choice to make, I guess. Like it, oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. criticizing the choice overall. I just think like, you know, it's things like that, that like, I just don't know if the ambition of the narrative arc of the main character and the stylistic choice of the way it's made, for me, I don't know that they totally 
jive. But I think we'd all agree that they really swung for the bleachers, to use the American sure. expression. And if they didn't necessarily land it on everything, like, wow, what a courageous and kind of honestly daring sort of vision to embrace. Because, I mean, it really was pushing a bunch of totally, buttons in yeah. terms of... There's definite home runs in there, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's some, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, fly balls and you know, I don't know much about baseball, but, you know... There's definitely shit landed inside the wall, but tons well, it, went outside yeah. the wall it's too. It's so, so much. It's so much like Barbie too, the Barbie Land. Yeah. you know, like it has mm -hmm. so much of that same. Which is so weird to compare the two because they're so different in a way. But there's something really similar. I think both thematically and stylistically in the mm -hmm. way that they're that they are crafted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now I just want to change gears. I think we. This is our last show before Christmas. So a couple of things. I'm going to ask you for your, on about this time that this is coming out, the uh, shortlist for the Oscars is going to come out. So I'm going to second and give you some chance to express anything that you would like to see moving all the way through uh, in the VFX Oscar category. I also want to point out that at SIDGRAPH, a bunch of people came up to us and said how much they enjoyed the show. Um, I'm trying to remember all of them. I know uh, Adam specifically asked me to do a call out to him on the show because he likes listening to it. And uh, Dave and... Um, Another guy uh, who's gave me my name, it's like, uh, not Jason. Anyway, I'll think of it in a second. That people were coming up a lot and just saying, hey, thanks so much um, for the VFX show. I really like listening to it. I uh, enjoy us getting caught up in, in uh, our circular arguments about uh, the validity <laughs> of this and that. And so we appreciate you guys uh, listening to it. Also, I want to say that um, it's been really uh, a good year for us in terms of uh, doing the show. We've really enjoyed it. We've going to continue doing it next year. So as always, we invite your input and be it in person if you see us or just uh, online. You can always hit me at mikes at fxguide.com or any of the guys as we always do at the end of the show when we tell you um, how to connect with them. But we do appreciate it because it makes it worthwhile and really rewarding when somebody, I'm sure you guys agree, sort of comes up to you mm -hmm. and says, hey, I appreciate sure. the show. I also had uh, one uh, VFX supervisor say to me, like, I just cringed listening, waiting, because I knew you were doing my film. And I was like, how are you going to treat my bit? And thank God you liked it. And I was like, I could breathe. But like, until he did that, I was like, just holding my breath. So for those of you that worked on uh, Poor Things, uh, please breathe now. Uh, it's, it's all over. You can relax. <laughs> we're not going to call out your comp anymore. Okay. That being said, we are, as I say, at the start of... Um, award season. So there's a lot of stuff uh, coming up. We've got some podcasts coming up on some of those films from, you know, months gone by. For example, we've got a podcast coming up where I'm talking to the guys of uh, Mission Impossible uh, about the work that they did uh, in that film. So if I can, without having given the guys any chance to prepare, I'll start with you, Jason. Any films VFX-wise that you would really want to see in the shortlist and then maybe getting to the bake-off? Let's leave out the winner for a second because that's like a whole different discussion, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm having like a massive brain freeze. I, I do hope that Creator gets a lot of uh, um, love because uh, I think the work, and I think we all agreed the work in that film was great. Uh, I think... This film certainly um, is a challenging uh, visual feast. Um, I'm trying to think what else was like not a standard kind of like, and I use this term lovingly, pablum of visual effects, uh, you know, like box office popcorn visual I mean, effects. Wonka, Indiana Jones. 
Barbie. I mean, oh, right. of the Flower Moon. I didn't Ant see Man of the, the Flower Moon yet. Uh, but Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think yeah. Barbie. I think Barbie has I a good shot at a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, come on, you can't campaign. You don't have visual effects and complain. Yeah, there's visual, no visual effects in that movie. Visual effects Oscar. There were no, there <laughs> no were no seat. visual effects in Napoleon either. Remember? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It shouldn't be nominated. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that when somebody actually put up a horrendously um, ironic piece of uh, editing oh, with where they Ridley? Had, Ridley on one side talking about how it was all shot for real. And on the other side, they had the making of real showing how it was all <laughs> yeah. done digitally. That's so good. You know, there is a really fantastic uh, video. I think I saw it on on my LinkedIn. Uh, and I, maybe it was presented at, at the Seagraph in Sydney. I don't know. But um, it's Pablo Hellman talking about invisible visual effects for Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm. And um, I haven't actually seen that movie yet. Um, it's on my list of things to watch. But mm-hmm. uh the video anyway that where he's talking about all the invisible visual effects like adding um you know oil derricks in the background and adding cows into shots and all kinds of set extensions to make it look like uh, oklahoma i believe right in the period that the film is set and uh it was so cool and the visual effects are so stunningly realistic looking, at least in the clips they show. Um, and it's just transformative to see something like that where it's it speaks to, I think, a lot of the the critique and criticism uh that we hear about things being shot for real. Here's something, you know, a you know, a pretty epic uh film, although I have to confess I have not seen it, but um where, you know, the visual effects really are integral to being able to set the story in the time in Mm -hmm. the place and uh and they really are like invisible effects they're not drawing attention to themselves they're just fulfilling story Uh, pablo is just such a nice guy like he's just one of my favorite soups okay so so you mentioned creator there's also Guardians of the Galaxy. There's another Transformers yep. film that was rise of the Barbie. Beast. Yeah. Spider, Spider-Verse too. Spider-verse. Yeah. Spider-verse. Or would right. that be yeah. animated? Napoleon, Society of the so. Snow, uh, Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny, Wonka. I'm just looking at possible films. I mean, here, right? Indy, Indy will probably make it through. I mean, it's certainly going to be on the short list. The de-aging, I think we agreed, was pretty successful for Indy in the beginning the rest of visual effects were like good um i think we had problems with some of the wall stuff um in that but on the train uh yeah so, in the tuck tuck market chase yeah um, yeah okay so so matt what are you going for it's it's hard i mean it's like i mean i would agree with jason i did you know i mean i guess i'm just a sucker for cool robots you know so the creator (laughs) just does stick out in my head um but i i really loved and i just don't know if it would fall into animation or vfx but i thought the across the spider verse Mm -hmm. was i actually thought it was better than the first one like and the animation and the the character animation and stuff was just so great um i think you know this movie uh poor things because it's such a kind of um kind of body kind of bold kind of effort would be really interesting i'm sure mission impossible will probably make the the short list i haven't seen i didn't see dungeons and dragons i don't think i saw it's, it's a big effects film but it's quite obviously effects like it's a sort of a it's leaning know, like it's into a, it 
Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like I'd love to see the Godzilla minus one. Oh, I saw it. I I saw it in Detroit. It's really good. It looks the visual effects. Visual effects are great. There, there's some. There's a couple shots where you're like this, which we always talk about, like scale changes a little bit, and you're like, wait, but I thought he was this big in this other scene, but now you're showing me he's kind of this big. But overall, it's. It's great. It's really good. People are good. talking about Wonka. I, th- I haven't seen Wonka. What's Society uh, of yes. Snow, though? What is that? Uh, is that the one that's the plane crash in the um, Alps? Uh, where they, oh, that's the J.A. Bayona mo- uh, movie. That's the gotcha. retelling of the uh, Alive. Um, one, of the, one of the problems yeah. I have is you could be doing really, really good visual effects work in, say, a film that didn't get received by critics. Um, no, okay, so I'm going to stick my neck out here and say The Flash doesn't deserve to be in the running because I actually thought it had some substandard visual effects. But let's say you worked on The Flash and gets caned in the critics. It's very hard for that to get up for visual effects because people associate the film and the visual effects very, very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, okay, like uh, The Marvels, right? It would have the same problem, right? Because the Marvels is like deemed to be the least successful Marvel film. So no matter how good the visual effects are that were done in that, it would be, I think, hard to get fully recognized by the Academy. I think you, you know, there's a point where the two kind of get confused. And I think also the criteria for the Academy is so weird. It's like some of it is originality and some of it is yeah. impossible and some of it is story, is it like how well movie? did it work for yeah. the story? Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's kind of like some it's, of the... I mean, Cocaine Bear is virtually a comedy, right? So it's hard mm-hmm. to imagine that it's going to get treated seriously for an Oscar contention film, right? I mean, you know, just, yeah. that's how – it's a weird mix. But I, I would have to – you stole my thunder with your opening remark. I would have to say the one film I would just feel heartbroken if it didn't get through to Bake Off is the creator. That yeah. would just just absolutely break my heart. So, yeah. I'm sure um, it will. It has to, right? Like it's just yeah. Gotta, I mean, yeah. and to your point, it hits all the metrics of the other things. I mean, it has. Uh, again, we all agree the work is stellar, but if we look at the other criteria you just mentioned as the unfortunate sort of anchors to a lot of these things, it's got it's got um, the pedigree. It has the visual effects house. It has the cinematographers. It has you know it has the things that sometimes make the academy go. That's the yeah, it's also not a sequel. I think it's also tough if yes. you're a sequel. Yeah, like, no matter how good Transformers Rise of the Beasts are, someone is going to go, but hang on, we've done Transformers before, haven't we? Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying like somebody's going to be like, well, that's not new. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. I would, okay. I would, I think you, somebody mentioned Guardians and I, and I was like, I just forgot about the movie, but then I was yeah. thinking about it while you're talking. <laughs> and it does have some very, uh, I very good visual effects that I really enjoy. That one down the hall. That one yeah. down the hall. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that's spectacular yeah. work. And all the rocket flashback stuff I thought was very compelling. I think we agree. Yeah. It was well, that's, really where, uh, the, emotional... that's where the VES awards, I think, are important. Yeah. They have a yeah. huge uh, impact on, you know, an individual artist's career, a small company's career. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's exciting to see all the categories and the, the sort of unashamedly, uh, you know, 
uh, unapologetically visual effects or whatever. Like it's great to have uh, something that's specifically geared towards that because I think Do every think the love gets in shared the a little of- more. So to that point of sharing the love, do you think that it would be appropriate to include poor things in that mix as a smaller, less tentpole? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I do. I mean, I think think there's a lot of, I mean, you know, if we're talking like visual effects and special effects too, because I mean, you think about Mm -hmm. some of the makeup effects in this, that the Willem Mm -hmm. Dafoe makeup in particular is so great, you know? Um, But yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's definitely uh, innovative and, uh, you know, fun, really fun to look at and to sort of ponder like, wait, what, how do they do that? What am I looking at here? You know, like, I think, yeah, it's, and it's totally original. Yeah. Can I call out Willem Dafoe's uh, digestive bubbles that come out sparingly oh, yeah, throughout the movie? So <laughs> Which I, what uh, the I enjoyed. What the hell was that about? Yeah. Well, he couldn't yeah. digest. So he had, to, he had to pump the stomach acid no, his into his father. I know his father body, removed yeah. his digestive. Yeah, I know. It was yeah. like, <laughs> bro, yeah. Thank, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, branding of Wait, my genitals for experimental yeah. purposes. I yeah. did enjoy his uh, Scottish accent too. I thought it was it was. It, it's the foe, I thought, yeah. As I said, I, I think his character was so well acted to not be just black and white, yeah. but actually be. He's yeah. always and so me. good, though. He's such a great actor. It would have and been Rami, so easy for Rami Yusuf actor was to make great that too. black and white. Yeah, you true. Rami yeah, Yusuf was, really was great too. Yeah. Okay, guys, we got to wrap it up. Uh, Jason, uh, as I always like to do, where can people? connect with you, especially if they'd like to give you feedback on other shows or movies that they'd like us to, uh, to do and watch. Uh, bros.com, uh, Jason diamond, anywhere you can put that into the socials. And, uh, I don't know if you see me, it might be my brother, but just say hi. Anyway, <laughs> for those that are listening, uh, he's referring to his twin brother. His twin. Yeah. I have to say, I can really tell you apart. But I when I first too. met you, I didn't. I, I could honestly say when I first yeah. met you, it took me a while. But now I like you seem cheesy. You guys have like, I mean, I love you both. You're both great guys, right? But it just it's been like 20 years different. almost, Mike. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But back in the day, I was like, yeah. what? Which diamond is that? <laughs> when we were thinner and less gray. Yeah. Are you speaking about all three of us here when you say that? Yeah, uh, yeah Matt? maybe. Matt? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm uh, at mattwallen.com. And I'm in the, is this, can you say this term? I'm in the Fediverse, <laughs> right? At the Matt Wallen, same thing. Like, so Mastodon and Threads and all the federated, um, yeah. We're still waiting for the dominant uh, replacement for X. Um, I think yeah. it's, I think it's the fact that Threads now has used, um, what's it called? Uh, the, open pub or what i can't remember the name of it now but uh they they said they were going to uh open their system up so that it could be federated and you could be able to read threads in a mastodon instance and Mm. post from mastodon eventually i think into threads and they said they were going to do it and people said oh that's not going to happen and the fact that they actually just started doing that in the last two weeks i think is pretty exciting. That means there is a real competitor. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm obviously the, over the at FX nerd. Guide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obviously at FX Guide. 
And uh, again, if you do uh, bump into us at conferences and stuff and uh, award shows and bake-offs and stuff, we always uh, love hearing and getting your feedback. Uh, it really is the oxygen upon which uh, we do the show. So thanks so much for being with us. Um, and thank you so much for 2023. Coming back in 24, we'll obviously be covering Oscar stuff, but we'll also be doing television shows. There's some great stuff coming out. June, I'm certainly looking forward to. I don't know if you guys have anything you're particularly looking forward to, but... Um, there's a lot of uh, good things. I can't hold my breath long enough to wait for Foundation Season 3 to come out. That's like my year. And uh, and a whole lot of other stuff. But I hopefully it'll be a good year for VFX now that the strikes are over. And I imagine mm-hmm. it's going to get pretty darn busy to get a visual effects artist by about April when the uh, pipeline causes those things to filter through to the uh, key uh, houses. Right when anyway, I go until- on sabbatical. So anybody's looking for a slightly used compositor come (laughs) April. Uh, I I definitely will uh, take you up on that offer, Matt. But guys, thank you so much uh, as always. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the new year. Until then, see you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.